We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy-to-prepare food. Order today, 888 888-457-3453, 888-457-3453, or go online at preparewithcr.com. That's preparewithcr.com. Build your emergency food supply for only $99. Limit two units per caller, 888-457-3453, or online at preparewithcr.com. That's 888-457-3453, or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Wednesday here on the Steve Day Show. That's right. It's a Worldview Wednesday. That's coming up in Hour 3 here tonight on the Salem Radio Network. Powered by Conservative Review, Daniel Horowitz will be joining us from Conservative Review to take us inside politics this hour in about 15 minutes. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. We love to know what you think about what we think, D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. So... We take a look at, um, you know, one of the things we're going to talk to Daniel about, gentlemen, here in about 15 minutes is the uh, the first reviews, right? When you're, normally it's the first hundred days that a presidency's initial foray is judged by, but when you're coming off eight years where you were ruled by a president who, who lived by the motto, by hook or by crook, who openly said, I've got a pen and a phone who was on tape saying to the fake Russian president four years ago, just let me get reelected one more time, and then there's all kinds of things I, could get, I can get away with after that. Okay, when, when, you're, when you're dealing with, that is your predecessor. The amount of power that you can wield in the opening days, because of the way that he chose to impose his agenda, 
is the amount of power Trump can wield right now legitimately because there are precedents set that he can undo is probably more than any president in, in their opening days since we since George Washington established the office and everything he did was precedent setting. I'm not, and I don't think am I being hyperbolic when I say that? I don't think so. I mean, when you look at everything Obama tried to do by fiat, the amount of power that Trump can wield, and this would be true of anybody that came in from the other party, the amount of power that this president can wield in the opening days of his president presidency is really unprecedented. Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I don't think it's so much the amount, but it's the type of stuff yes. that, that Obama did. Yes, and no one's worried about making sure they have an impression of being august or sober-minded. Basically, it's about well, that poll we read yesterday, every man for itself. It's yes. like, hey, man, it's, it's go time. So then let's take a look at what, how the first week is going here so far. Because, you know, we talked about Obama's legacy about a week and a half ago, this duality of Obama's legacy and that he has decimated his party. But yet he has moved the ball down the field on their issues beyond anything, even the most, con- con- even the most committed Obama Easter eight years ago would have envisioned the things Obama could do, and he, and he managed to do them. So yes, on one hand, his party play- paid a huge political price for this. We've talked before. They have, we've got the fewest Democrats in representative government in America right now than we've had since before the Great Depression. That's almost 90 years ago. But but no one would argue that he's that the, that the cost that they paid had they've they've received a reward in policy in terms of how they've moved the ball down the field. I think we're already beginning to see a duality a, a, that that same duality in the Trump presidency, and it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Because if you look at this, you know we've talked so often about how the most sweeping power a president has is the bully pulpit, right? The bully pulpit wielding that we have seen so far, in my view, has been a disaster. I mean, it's been a disaster. Essentially tweeting we should declare martial law in American cities by sending the, the, Fed, the, the army in to clean up the streets, because that's what he means by the Fed. So same as it ever was, well, I mean, I mean, the, the clown show that Sean Spicer's act was on Saturday, um, saying that um, I, I lost the popular vote because of three to five million illegal uh, votes, when his own attorneys... In official court filings a month ago during Jill Stein's fake recounts are testifying under oath in sworn affidavits that there's no evidence of mass voter fraud impacting the result of the election whatsoever. I mean, there's numerous examples of this. The, 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 bullet, the bully pulpit stuff has been a disaster. But, and I'm sure when we talk to Daniel in a few minutes, if, if I, this is what I love about being friends with Daniel. I know if there's something bad I am missing, he will find it. <laughs> right? So I am sure he will bring me down to earth. But when I look at the first week that we have seen here, on a host of issues, actually, this has been pretty good in the promise-keeping department. It ain't, it's not been 100%. But, dude, if Ted Williams is the greatest hitter that ever lived, he's the last guy to hit 400. He, Trump is batting more than 400 on his promise promises. He's hitting about 750, 800. All right? I mean... I would argue this opening week, if you're not, and, and I'm not looking at this as a Trump cultist or as a progressive. This opening week for people with our belief system, this might be in terms of policy the best week we've had in years. Granted, it's a low bar. But, but maybe since the Bush era got bogged down by Iraq, the quagmire, quagmire of Iraq after the fall of Saddam, this might be the best week we've had going back, which now we're back to 2004, 2005. So we're back over, well over a decade now. I mean, Aaron was, you know, 
Aaron's voice hadn't hadn't cracked yet. Okay, the Still last. Hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's been a long time, and and what I find fascinating about this, guys, is, you know, the Bible says, "Out of the heart, the mouth speaks." So we are used to being deceived by people's words. We're used to being told the right stuff, and then when they get in, and what they do doesn't match up with what they say. What to me, Trump, ever the ever the mercurial, his words are not affirming. His actions have been pretty good. I don't know that I've ever met a politician who I was afraid of what they would say, yet happy with what they did. Every other time in my case, it's the exact opposite. You love what they say, and then you watch what they were doing, and like, well, you know, that didn't line up. You guys noticing this trend, or you agree or disagree? Well, what do you think? Rules for patriots. You're being reminded right now. Forget, forget the specificity of any one issue. This is what going on offense looks like. And we have not mm. been on offense for so Long now, it's important, and with every single action he takes, you, and and many people are right to point it out. Are we? Uh, is he cheating? Because in the back of our mind, that's what we're wondering. You know, what what are his what are his motivations? Is he manipulating uh, us the same way we would have been hating if uh, Barack Obama did it? Using whatever uh, machinations of government he's using, whether it's executive orders, etc. But. Just the fact that we've been on offense, it just goes to show, Steve, how long we've been starving, wandering in the desert. Yeah, and I would agree with with most of that. I have a little bit different take on this. I like taking a big picture view when I can. And I need to preface this by saying I'm very pleased with a lot of stuff, a lot of actual action that I'm seeing. I mean, if if Donald Trump actually follows through, there was a report going on yesterday that he's uh, promised to um, sign a bill that would defund Planned Parenthood or not to make taxpayer um, funding of abortion available. I think that's more technically correct. I'm very pleased with a lot of stuff that I'm seeing. My biggest fear is that at the end of four or eight years of President Donald Trump, and we keep seeing good things, good policy decisions come out of him, that we still really won't be anywhere as a people, as a culture. We won't be uh, moving anywhere because of that uh, issue that you just pointed out. The bully pulpit is not being used. And so Hmm. the last eight years, the last eight years, um, the left... I would make the argument they never really convinced people of their arguments. They made them acquiesce. I fear the same thing will happen to conservatives. We're maybe making the the left acquiesce, but we're not really winning an argument because that bully pulpit is not being used effectively. That's negative, but in and again, I'm I'm happy with a lot of stuff that I'm seeing. But that's my big fear that we're just seeing a band aid put on somebody with leprosy. Totally Our young Padawan, I think, just made a really good point that I'd not considered. Uh, tonight and that is and and first of all what you want him to do he's not capable of he doesn't have the world view to use the bully that's baked into the cake yeah the world view he doesn't have the world view to use the bully pulpit in the way that you want Mm -hmm. okay so you know you learn when you start parenting children that you learn really quick that you can't ask human beings to go beyond their own limitations all right Mm -hmm. so he doesn't have the world view to do what you want which is probably why I am enthusiastic, because we're getting policies we would like from someone I know doesn't have the worldview that we have, okay? Yeah. But, but your long-term look at this, which is it's clear the left has not... Has, that's, and maybe this is why they had to become a party of imposing their will on people, because they couldn't win the argument any other way. 
But the long-term way we win this fight is to use a bully pulpit, Todd, like the presidency, to point out to win the hearts and minds of the people. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. And and I just don't want us on uh, the conservative spectrum, those who actually do have a worldview, to confuse policy win with winning an argument. That's why we need a different bully pulpit. Actually, we have have made that, we've confused that for many years. It's just we thought winning the argument was more important than policy. And and, and you can't have one without the other. That's true. And now that... we have action going on one front. The, the, the we need a new black robe regiment, Steve. I mean, that's where the cultural transformation is going to come. Yeah. I, well, there's there's no question. But you know what? People who are who ha, who were supporting Trump, not cultist. I'm not even trying to reason with them. Uh, but you know who people were supporting Trump are listening to us tonight. You know what they were saying all along? This is what we told you. Mm-hmm. We knew all these things about this guy that you didn't like, but we thought he had the temerity to at least buy us some time so you could have time for a black-robed regiment or some of those things, that he would go in, bowl in a china shop, and do some of these things to at least give us time to win. That's what they're saying to us right now. To which I remind them, it's day five. (laughs) You're listening to Steve Dace. of the battles he refused to fight. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. And speaking of Conservative Review, let's go inside politics. Here on a Wednesday night with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review joining us now. Daniel, how are you? Hey, I'm doing all right. Big week. It has been a big week. Uh, I want to get your response to what I opened the show with tonight, and I posted something along these lines on my Facebook wall earlier today. And this duality of the Trump era, uh, I think we're seeing it already this week. In that, from a bully pulpit standpoint, in my view, this has been a disaster. From Sean Spicer's clown show Saturday to accepting the premise of every liberal argument on our talking on their talking points on issues from immigration to just name them all uh, to tweeting out, you know, maybe we should send the feds in to declare de facto martial law on Chicago. I mean, it has been Trumpian. However, from a policy standpoint, and I know there are a couple of concerns because there always are. We live in an imperfect world and we'll tackle those in a moment. But from a policy standpoint, his record so far on keeping his promises is pretty darn good. In fact, I would make the case, and admittedly, for people like you and me who are not Trump cultists but not progressives either, the expectation level isn't high. The bar is low because the last decade or so has trained us uh, to look uh, to not look up because our salvation is not nigh. That is a boulder about to drop on us. So with that in mind, however... From a policy standpoint, in my view, this is the best week people like you and me have had since the W years got bogged down in the quagmire of Iraq. And what is fascinating about this to me, and I'll, I'll be fascinated to see if you agree with my analysis or not here in a moment, but if you do agree, that means in Trump we have something we don't typically see in a politician. Most politicians, their words are great. It's their actions you have to worry about. This guy seems to be the inverse of this, Daniel. You cringe when he goes to a mic. You cringe when he goes to Twitter. But yet, when you sit back and get and you and you look beyond the cowbell, he's done a lot of things this week. People like you and me would actually like, and we would have cheered any Republican doing things like this. You know, I guess I'd answer that by saying it's too early to tell, and I might let some of the air out of the balloon by saying that. 
Um, you're definitely right in the thesis that unlike any other president, you cannot go based on his preliminary words, even preliminary actions. And that's why I'm still a little bit hesitant to judge, you know, yay or nay, good or bad, based on what's been done, because you really have to see what's final, just given the schisms in the administration, the schisms within his own comments, um, and that he's very inconsistent. Uh, it has definitely been a positive week, the fact that he's fulfilled those promises rather than not fulfill them. But I, I would notice, too, um, you got to look at the enormity of given executive actions rather than kind of a comprehensive list, because, you know, Mexico City policy and the Keystone Pipeline, any Republican president would have done that. I don't want to take anything away from him, but, you know, those were basic. It was Obama who was holding it up, um, and that that was expected. You get rid of that. K Street supports it. Everyone supports it. I I think the key is going to be, you know, um, when it comes to how comprehensive of a cool-off in immigration he actually pushes, I'm seeing good signs. That's still unclear. Obviously, Obamacare is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Will they actually get rid of the regs? And then finally, what does he wind up doing with Obama's executive amnesty? And we've seen mixed signals on that. So, yes, it has been better than I expected, but I still would say it's too early to tell fully. All right. So you're right that a lot of the things he has done is what – most of the Republicans that, that would have gotten elected would have done. But I think that actually reinforces my point. He's not like most of the other Republicans. He has spent most of his life, frankly, as a progressive. He has spent most of his adult life funding and aligning himself against people like you and I's interests. That was the number one. I mean, you, we weren't on the Trump train. I was more never Trump than you were. But you and I weren't piloting the Trump train for the same reasons that, uh, you know, with all due respect, somebody like Bill Crystal wasn't. Okay, we actually didn't think he meant the crazy stuff he was saying that uh, people were cheering and were making a lot of the people in Washington that we don't like sick to their stomach. Our issue was we didn't think he meant a lot of this stuff. Okay, it appears that at least early on he had I mean, he he has meant some of that. So even if if this was even if all he turns out to be is another conventional Republican, Given what the country's coming out of, that's a market improvement. I think we should acknowledge that. No, and I think you're seeing an interesting observation here. This is one area where the binary idolatry actually helps us. There's nowhere to go in, in this business. You can't be independent. So given that... I'm going like, to try, however, but we'll see. Yeah, But I'm just saying, despite the fact that he was a lifelong Democrat, the bottom line is it's Republicans, particularly conservative populists, who brought him to the ball, to a large degree, that's what he surrounded himself with. He doesn't have a lot of room to, to move, and, and you see some of the outrage um, from conservatives, including myself, on, on the reluctance to get rid of DACA. I, I think that did have its effect, and that's why you saw today some of the announcements on immigration. So I think for the most part, conservatives are in a good place, but again, you've got to trust but verify. Always. Th- that's a perpetual state. All right. And I'm understanding that this is the first week when I'm um, what I'm you know, part of my job is to project what I think will happen and to analyze what is happening now. And and sometimes those things are in conflict. The reality is, for the most part, I, I don't know how no matter unless you're a hardened progressive. Right. Unless you're the, one, the Greenpeace people putting up the resist sign behind the White House today, unless you're those people, I don't know how you can't be at least encouraged 
by what has transpired this opening week. The, but, but this is, goes back to the point of the first question I asked you. We often have talked about Trump's use of the bully pulpit and the authoritarian way in which he speaks, the, uh, the canoe-like antics that he likes to engage in, and how that throws the media off the scent, and that can work to our advantage. But could it also work to his disadvantage, too? Which is because there, because you create such a sensation that even your own base loses track of of the of the actual substance that you're offering them. Can it work both ways? I, I mean, I, I think for the most part it works to Trump's benefit. He is so different, so out of the back box, so zany that I think people have tuned it out. The, some of the things you mentioned about the comments he's made this week, I don't think it has its effect. I think this gets back to what you said a couple of weeks ago. It's all about delivery. Does he deliver on economic growth, on jobs, on security, getting rid of Obamacare, or does he not? And I think if, if he does, if anything, this stuff will just help him. Um, it will distract. I don't think people are going to hate him more than they already dislike him personally. That, that's already baked into the cake. Now, I do say that where I see somewhat of a disadvantage is from the conservative base side. I'm worried about conservatives getting distracted by some of these media fights rather than holding his feet to the fire. Oh, that's that's and, going to guarantee happen. That's why I'm trying to talk about substance and not that other stuff, because I know almost every other show that's on before I am at night has already talked about all that other stuff and not the substance. The crowd size, baby. Yeah. I mean, you're right, because reactionaryism isn't conservatism, but it draws a crowd. But you're right. I mean, to me, if the guy's going to do some of the stuff that when we listened to him thought it'd be nice if he meant those things, if he's going to follow through with them, I don't know why, what's in it for us to not encourage him to do that, to advocate for that, to back him up when he does. What's it, especially because we're going to get all the baggage for him anyway. So why not do, why not try to take credit for some of the constructive stuff? You know what I'm trying to say here real quick? Exactly. We, we should own, we should own all the credit. All right, when we come back, we're going to take a look at some areas where, however, uh, promises appear to be slow to be kept. Uh, Daniel's mentioned them both, Obamacare and DACA. We'll get into that here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Following the truth, no matter where it leads. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, going inside politics. You're on the Salem Radio Network with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review. All right, so you've already mentioned, so I, I, I tried to paint not a rosy scenario, but an accurate uh, depiction of what I'm seeing so far, which is optimistic. Um, but, uh, and this is why we love Daniel because he is your in-house Ezekiel. He is your perpetual watchman on the wall. So he is always there to warn you about, uh, potential pitfalls, even someone who is a notorious skeptic of all things, because I'm a total depravity kind of guy, I may miss. So right, right away when I asked an opening question trying to lay out what I thought was a, was an optimistic scenario for what we've seen here for the first almost week of the Trump era, you've already pointed out two areas though where there's some warning signs. Now, Promises where Obamacare and DACA are concerned have not been broken. 
But there are but clearly there have been some signs that they have been slow to be kept earlier today. Steve King said that if Trump does not follow through on getting rid of DACA, that is Obama's illegal executive amnesty for those that don't get the acronym, uh, that this would be a violation, a fundamental violation of the rule of law is what our congressman here in Iowa, Steve King, said earlier. So let's start with that. And one of the one of the things I wanted to point out to our audience last night, Daniel, is there's this notion out there that this hysteria the media is peddling that if DACA, if Trump were to to ixnay DACA out because it, he could because it was given by executive fiat that suddenly all these people would be mass deported that's not really the case here or what this is about can you clarify that sure and this cuts to the core why I think this represents a the first violation unless you know there's only 24 hours in a day things could change he's only had a couple of days but some of the affirmative um, statements being made by administration people already violate the, the spirit of this. And, and that's as follows. What is Obama's executive amnesty? It's not merely Obama saying, I'm not going to deport these people. It's Obama declared himself king and without the authority of Congress, nullified congressional statutes that say they're here illegally, they have to go, and gave them affirmatively, gave them positive status work permits, social security cards of Americans, and thousands of dollars in refundable tax credits per individual. So when, when some of these people like Ryan Priebus and Sean Spicer say, well, we're not going to prioritize uh, you know, throwing them out, we're going to focus on criminals, A, you're echoing Obama's kind of straw man talking point, but B, it, 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 that's not the issue, and this speaks to the broader issue of immigration. This false dichotomy between amnesty and just immediately mass rounding everyone up. It, you, you could start by not incentivizing it and not subsidizing it. So while I don't expect Trump to do every last good thing for us within the first week, he, he, he needs to breathe. But there's no middle ground on this because, A, it is patently unconstitutional, has to go. And, B, it, it, it merely requires that Trump's own DHS simply not issue the permits. When people come to renew or uh, initial uh, issuance, you just, we're done. We close up shop. You don't have to affirmatively take a new step and plow some new ground, new policy. You just take away what Obama did. So what is the holdup here, then, if that's really the issue that's at stake? And given everything else that he has been willing to tackle, what's the issue with this? You know, you know, this is where I think Reince Priebus um, has his influence. And what I'm starting to see happening here is this. When Trump understands something intellectually and emotionally and is sympathetic to our side, he'll go with Steve Bannon and, and Steve Miller and those guys. Um, but where he is kind of confused and doesn't understand the issue, he's more vulnerable to Reince winning out. And I think when it comes to DACA, that's why you hear Trump himself saying, well, we got to find something to do with the Dreamers because he buys into this false argument. So um, I, I think that's where it comes from. He just doesn't understand that issue as well as he understands, say, immigration from Somalia. Yet Robert Costa over at the Washington Post reported today that uh, the most influential person in the administration right now is Jeff Sessions. Well, if that were true, wouldn't that wouldn't that uh, equal uh, movement on an issue such as the one we're talking about here? And that could very well be. And look, we could talk next week and it could be gone. Um, you know, you know, but I'm not basing this off of inaction. I'm basing it off of statements that Trump and several other surrogates have made that that run contrary to that promise. So, I'm I'm just not sure 
who's going to wind up winning out. Remember, back in the general election, there was a brief struggle for the direction of Trump on immigration. Some people are saying that Newt Gingrich was trying to move him to the left. It appears that Sessions won out there, so it could, could be the same thing will happen again. So you view this as a tug of war that is happening within the administration between the uh, the Reince wing and the Bannon wing. That's how you think this is going down right now? Absolutely, and that's why personnel is always policy. All right, when we come back, we're going to look at the other area where there are, there are some warning signs, but not all of these have to do with Trump. Uh, really, Congress takes the initiative here, and that is Obamacare. We'll get to that here in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. So that the world may know, this is Steve Dace. All right, back here with Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review, who takes us inside politics each Wednesday night at this time here on the Steve Dace Show on the Salem Radio Network. All right, so, so, Daniel, can you help us figure out what is going on with Obamacare? There are a million stories out there. I, I do this for a living. I don't know what's happening. Half the stuff I read say this thing's getting repealed right away. Half the stuff I read say that this is all not going down. This is a scam. What's, what's really happening here? Can you, can you separate the wheat from the chaff here on this issue? What's happening is members of Congress, the media, and Trump don't understand what Obamacare is. So hence the semantics debate over whether they're repealing, what they're repealing, what they're replacing. Um, at, at a baseline, unless there's an intervention from God, Republicans plan to preserve what they call the pre-existing condition mandate and pretty much many of the other regulations that have taken insurance out of insurance and have made it actuarially insolvent, have tripled premiums, and are responsible for the fact that 70% of the counties in America only have one or two insurers. That's what it is. It is the regs. On the other side of that, you have, in order to um, sugarcoat it for people, they have all the subsidies and the Medicaid expansion. So the entire debate is over how much of the subsidies and Medicaid expansion we're going to repeal, and therefore what we're going to replace it with, and for most Republicans, it's essentially the same type of replacement. But they are all basing it off the premise of not fixing the private insurance market, of keeping the regs that keep the prices at a record high on sustainable level that engender the need for these subsidies. That, in a nutshell, is what almost none of these members of Congress understand. So if they follow through on their variation of repeal, as you are describing. In your mind, as an analyst, you're, and that's what you do for us at CR, you're a policy analyst. The end game for the average listener to the Steve Day show would be what? The end game is premiums absolutely don't go down. You do not have more choice or competition in the marketplace. It's the same thing, um, albeit maybe a few less subsidies and structured a little differently. But it, but it will be announced to the public as repeal of Obamacare. All right. Now, if that's the case, what's the political impact of that? Oh, the political impact is a disaster, and you already see that coming. And that's what Republicans are grappling with, um, that by keeping the high prices but having less subsidies, less fewer people are going to have insurance. And they're not going to be able to purchase it because Obamacare is still in place. 
but all those detriments will be blamed upon the repeal of Obamacare, not ironically the preservation of Obamacare. They've twisted themselves into a pretzel because they don't believe or understand free market health care. How can they not understand this? They had six years, about 50 votes to repeal this. Two elections that they won where this was one of the deciding issues, especially in 2014, the first year that the premiums and the exchanges were opened up and the premiums were increased right about the time within the month of the midterm election. That was the deciding issue that handed them total control of Congress. How is it possible that they cannot understand this? I mean, I guess it's always easy to be a conservative when you're out of power. And you, under, and, and you figure it's a good talking point. But when you're actually there, you've got to believe in the power of a free market to bring down prices to just what they were a few years ago. Um, you know, I'm going to have a list of 20 free market ideas. We could go even further. But they don't understand this. They don't believe it. And, Steve, when you don't believe in something, you can't really fight for it. There's an article out today that I read from a conservative commentator who says, in light of everything that you just said, Republicans are better off just leaving it in place. That politically, what they're trying to do would be the worst case scenario. They'd be better off just leaving it where it's at. What's your view of that? I've come to that same conclusion. I mean, I I still think we should fight for something better. But if the only option is what they're putting on the table, the reality is it will be even worse and we're going to get blamed for it. You may as well have the talking point and just say, look, Democrats are filibustering. They're not cooperating. Um, I, I don't know what to say, but I mean, someone needs to break their brains on this and note that you can never bring down prices unless you tear down the Berlin Wall of regs and allow anyone to issue insurance for any purpose to any reason, you know, any any uh, individual under any circumstance, and then. You lower the prices, you isolate and minimize the problem of pre-existing conditions, and the remaining people, for goodness sake, just make them an HSA and put money directly in it to pay for their health care expenses. It will be so much cheaper, and it won't affect everyone else's insurance market. All right, I want to make sure, for people that might be confused by what you just heard Daniel say, see if I can simplify it, tell me if I'm on the right track. What I hear you saying is that, is that the current Republican, majority Republican view of, of what repeal would look like is to get rid of the individual mandate and the subsidies while maintaining all the regulations and all the other aspects of an entitlement, but to get rid of the individual mandate that makes you buy into the system and the subsidies that undergird the system and keep it solvent. Is that what I hear you saying? Exactly. To put it more simple, you keep stabbing the victim, but you take away the morphine. Hmm. <laughs> why would they think that would work? I, I, I'm trying to look at it from their viewpoint. Why would they think that would work? Well, I mean, they're understanding that it's not working, so that's why, they're. if you notice, they're delaying it, and they're trying to figure out to um, not really repeal the Medicaid expansion and give even more subsidies. But you're asking, well, why don't you just stop the stabbing? I, I, because they are so convinced then insurance companies will be allowed to throw people off their insurance but why 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 not just massively why not just given what you're telling me 
why not just massively expand Medicaid for the, for the, to the point that uninsured people can buy in at a reduced rate or block grant states to create programs like we have in my state, the Hawkeye program, where people that are uninsurable or can't afford insurance can buy it directly from rather than the feds, buy it directly from the state at a reduced rate. Why not just do that then? I, you know, I'm with you. I mean, to me, ideally... I think if we really made my 20 free market reforms, you wouldn't need that. But that is a compromise. I'm but we clearly don't have people in Congress willing to do. Listen, I'd rather do what you want, but it's clear we don't have the people with the intellectual capability yeah. to sell this and defend it and, and even administer it, even if they could. So if that's the case, then why, then why not come up with a better exactly. half measure than this? But, but, but get rid of the regs and allow everyone else to purchase free market health care. Daniel, we appreciate it as always. Thanks for joining us again this week, brother. We'll do it again next Wednesday night, okay? Take care. All right, we'll have some uh, review of the comments from Daniel Horowitz here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Daily Truth Project. This is Steve Dace. All right, let's get some reaction to what we just heard from Daniel Horowitz taking a look at the almost first week of uh, the Trump administration. And uh, both uh, numerous positive signs, but two big worrisome signs where uh, Obama's illegal amnesty and Obamacare is concerned. Uh, Your thoughts on what you just heard, Todd, I'll start with you. Well, I want to answer with the question to you regarding DACA. Is it possible that their thinking is that their efforts along the lines of building a wall, getting rid of uh, sanctuary cities, there's multiple moving parts in there. The thrust of that will have such, create such a sea change in the environment. And we know how much... You know, the status quo is the status quo until it isn't anymore. Mm -hmm. And if it isn't anymore, then to some degree, I'm asking, I don't, that the DACA situation kind of takes care of itself. The the environment is different. Uh, Mitt Romney talked about um, people uh, self-deporting. Uh, now, is it pie in the sky to think that's what happens to everybody? What you're asking of course. me, they're, 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 they're attacking the, the demand side of yes. immigration, of illegal immigration, reduces the supply. I have advocated this uh, approach for a couple of years. I wrote an in-depth column for Town Hall about this a few years ago, where I actually laid out uh, an immigration um, reform that that's, that that it, it's not uh, it's it's not. And it's 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 not security and then amnesty. It's it's border security only. Put the provisions in place that are that fix the long term problem rather than beginning with debating what to do with the people here who right, are already. Exactly. Once you do that, you lose. I'm I, I, I'm with you. But but Daniel brings up a good point about this. It's not that this was an act of Congress signed into law by the president of the United States. There's a bigger principle here than just the issue of amnesty. I have long said to our audience, even before you guys came to work here, again, you, we can fight the environment all you want, and, and sometimes you just do things because of the right thing to do, but the American people were never going to stand for mass deportations of families. They just never were. It wasn't going to happen. That's why, you know, one of my predictions this year is that we're going to see largely the same deportation rate under Trump that we saw under Obama, which was actually higher than what we saw under Bush. 
But on this issue, the way that Obama went about imposing this by fiat, setting the precedent that a president will bypass Congress, the entire rule of law mechanism, in order to change America's sovereignty and national security. I think that's what somebody like Daniel would come back with, which is, if they had done this the old-fashioned legislative way, I can listen to that argument. But he's more concerned, and that's what I think you heard Steve King allude to earlier today, the the precedent of allowing this to stand. So that, that the next time someone comes in and decides, well, you know what, I'm just going to undo all the security measures that you passed and everything that you did. I won't have to. And if I have a Republican Congress, I'll just bypass them all and just by stroke of a pen undo all of those things. I think it's the rule of law premise people are worried about. I agree. But because he's being so forceful in so many other areas, I don't think he's going to hang on that one particular issue. And I think the Reagan comparison with the, the uh, Air Force traffic controllers, I think that's a stretch. This we have a, time. This was a major promise that he made, though. Oh, he has to come through sooner or later. I agree. You're listening to Steve Dace. Now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. Hour two underway here on the Steve Day Show on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Later in this hour, we're going to give you a first-person glimpse of what is truly going on in the Middle East, an interview you absolutely don't want to miss. Also coming up in Hour 3, Worldview Wednesday, which means it's time for the Nightly Buzz. Completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. Yes, indeed, we do. These are the headlines we didn't have time to get to earlier in the show or even later on. But our producer, Aaron, after finding out what's trending on social media at your water cooler at work, has determined that, indeed, they are worthy of commenting on nonetheless. So he has those brief headlines. We will have the probably not as brief hot takes. President Donald Trump says he will reveal his Supreme Court pick next Thursday. A person familiar with the process said the president has narrowed his choice to three federal appellate judges. I think like we saw with his vice presidential pick, like we've seen in general, I, I think that um, we shouldn't trust that he has necessarily narrowed it down to this list. I think that this is largely trial ballooning, as we talked about last night. I think he is auditioning them to get their reaction. I think Diana Sykes was auditioned and it went over, meh. I think Bill Pryor was auditioned and it went over like a lead balloon in some key circles, particularly amongst some key evangelical leaders. So that's moved on. And now we're talking about Hardiman. We're talking about Gorsuch. Mm-hmm. Um, is, 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 and Pryor is, is the third, third one still. I, I, yeah. I, I don't think he'll, it'll be him. Um, I, I still think there's a chance that an organized movement of conservatives could rally behind a name. This is the beauty of dealing with a guy that 
it can can move and change at the drop of a hat. It's frustrating, yes, but you can use it to your advantage as well. And that's where I do think there's time, and I think, to me, the best name to rally behind among those who actually are on the record wanting it. Because I also wouldn't present Trump an alternative solution that required any heavy lifting. I would present him an alternative solution that it's all gift-wrapped, and all he has to do is say yes. In my view, the best person out there who who is on record as saying they would take it is Senator Mike Lee of Utah. I do think if if key conservative leaders, particularly people at Heritage, uh, were, were to rally behind him and his nomination, even in this last week, Todd, I think the chances are pretty good that you could see Trump just drop those other judges and move on to him right away, particularly because they've already met together already. Um, and I think that if you have concerns, you know, it's interesting. I read Ed Whalen at National Review. I read his counter analysis to Andy Schlafly today. Uh, and, and the interview that he gave on our show last night with his concerns about Neil Gorsuch. And, and here's the reality. Here's really two smart guys that are looking at guy like prior to me is different. I have interaction. I've, I've got experience with prior working against us. Gorsuch is, is a blank slate in a lot of these cases. So you can, you can look at that. And look at some of the things that he has been a part of and project on them the way Schlafly has legitimately. There's evidence for that. You can look at uh, some things that Whalen has noticed and project on him affirmatively the way that he has. To me, that can't be this pick, though. That can't be this pick. The time for Neil Gorsuch is the next pick, guys. Because that's the one that's going to determine the balance of the ideological balance of the court. That's the fifth vote. That's when you throw in your guy that uh, has, you know doesn't necessarily have a solidified record to pick apart. That's when you bring that guy in. This is your Scalia, and you have to know for sure, a hundred percent, not eighty-five, Todd, not ninety. You have to know for sure you're getting a Scalia for a Scalia. You would know that for sure with Mike Lee, because if you get this one wrong then really it, it, it severely diminishes the impact of that fifth vote later on because you're right back to where you started from. And while all of these uh, federal judges are capable of holding their own in front of this committee, they know what happened to Robert Bork. Uh, it would be less likely for either Mike Lee or uh, Ted Cruz for different reasons. I mean, th- they've been in that soup for so long, and you pointed out how ridiculous some of the questions would be to Mike Lee or Ted Cruz. Like, dude, we've been hanging out together for, like, years now. What especially you, Lee, who's, especially, who's much more liked amongst but, his fellow but, senators than Ted is. But Let's even, be honest about yes, that. Yes, but even Cruz proves the point. I mean, they'd skate him through, even though they loathe him, just to yeah, get I'm him a, out of there. I'm, I'm under the. I've got a, a, a friend of mine who is a friend of a high-ranking U.S. senator, who told me flat out. He told him off the record a month ago. Cruz would get seventy votes just to get rid of him. Okay, just to get rid of him. I, I think Lee would skirt through as well because the, look how look how ridiculous their arguments were in the Sessions confirmation. They'd be even more ridiculous in the Lee confirmation because he's even more collegial. He's even more easygoing. He's even more liked. I mean, so, so this is a he. That's why I think among the people that are out there that we know are on record as saying they would take it. That's why I think he's and, the best choice. Can you make Sessions? What if Sessions thought and did and believed all the things he does, but came in the form of some attorney from somewhere else that we didn't know? It could have been a much much harder sure. go. Sure, I agree. 
President Trump will hurl federal officials into the task of building a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border, call for boosting border patrol forces, and look to increase deportations of illegal immigrants by signing two executive orders during his visit to the Department of Homeland Security, the agency that would implement those actions. The executive orders will also seek to end sanctuary cities and the practice of releasing undocumented immigrants detained by federal officials. Illegal trial. aliens. Illegal we don't, there's aliens. no such thing as undocumented immigrants on our show. Illegal aliens. I like all of that. Now, one of my predictions for this year, gentlemen, is that we would never, we're never going to see a shovel break the ground on this wall. I hope I'm wrong. I, I've been an advocate of building a wall for years. I hope I'm wrong. I've been pleasantly wrong a lot this week. I want to be wrong a lot. Uh, and, and as far as how to pay for it, I have... Even all the time I was skeptical that Trump was serious about building the wall, I've, you guys have heard me make this argument. It's easy to get Mexico to pay for it. How, you, how many millions of dollars do you give to them in foreign aid every year? Just offset that in your budget, off the cost of the wall, however many years it takes to fully reimburse American taxpayers, and we call it even, Todd. That, uh, that's an easy, that, that's, that's, that is an easy mountain to climb. And what he's also making easy on himself, I love how he's packaging many of these themes together and go, and, and then going after a lot of other things at the same time. We talked about, uh, the, you know, the importance of uh, being very, very active, uh, in the first hundred days because a lot of, it's counterintuitive, but a lot of people think, well, I'm just going to focus on one aspect of this and I'm really going to button it up and I'm going to get people on my side. Well, then you just have it hanging out there like a pinata and everybody jumps on it. He may not get everything done to the degree we would want it to but because there's so much going on he's going to get some of this stuff done and that's a win so uh, this happened by way of executive order we didn't talk about this but it needs to be talked about Donald Trump declared his own holiday on inauguration day this is how the executive order read. Now, therefore, I, Donald J. Trump, President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the constitutions and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim January 20th, 2017, as National Day of Patriotic Devotion. This is for real? Yeah. yeah this that, is not fake news? That's no. some troll in there. <laughs> What do you say? Troll key unlocked? Yes. User user achievement unlocked. Troll level master. Yes. That's... That is... I saw somebody. I don't if know. If it's not a troll, it's creepy. So I, I would pref- I, I'm yeah. going to prefer to believe it is a troll. I, that is the alternative fact I choose to believe. Like, was this uh, tweeted out by the DPRK news service on Twitter? I saw somebody say, like, it was Kim Jong Trump or something like that. Um, last story here uh, The abortion industry has a new enemy ultrasounds in a bizarre and rambling 2600 yeah, this word was a bad look by the atlantic yesterday published Go ahead. on tuesday the atlantic writer maura weigel uh, took a sledgehammer to basic science because you know they're the party of science and the left is you know this, anyway the article's headline is bad enough how the ultrasound pushed the idea that a fetus is a person but it also its subhead is the real work of art the technology has been used to create an imaginary heartbeat and sped up videos that falsely depict a response to stimulus. And then there is this part of the story. It remains unclear what the popular enthusiasm for fetal images actually means. This is a win- this is why we say the life issue is not a litmus test. It is a window to the soul. Let me let me put this headline in another context. Copernicus pushes notion the earth is not flat. 
You see what I'm saying? I mean, what they're saying is science. Mm-hmm. Science convinced us we were. Science is convincing people we're wrong. They got to look at what was actually going on inside that womb, and it's not what we were claiming all along. Journalism is magical and not at all broken. You're listening to Steve Dace. got his finger on the button of truth. Put the finger down. It's Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So, of course, it is the most uh, vitally, strategically important region of the world. It is the Middle East. But uh, what really is happening there? What are conditions really like there? Let's get a first-person account from our guest here this hour who joins us all the way from Iraq. Her name is Juliana Temarazi. She is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council and also the Philos Project. And we want to welcome her to the show here tonight. And Juliana, my name is Steve Dace. It is a pleasure and an honor to have you with us this evening. It is my honor. Thank you for having me, Steve. Before we get into issues and conditions, give our audience a little bit of your background. Who are you? Uh, I was actually born in Iran. I'm an Assyrian from Iran. A lot of people think when we say Assyrian, it means Syrian, which it's not. Assyrians are Ninevites, the same Ninevites that Jonah preached to uh, thousands of years ago. And we still are in existence for four, about four million of us left in the world. So I was born in Iran. I was smuggled out of Iran in 1989, twice, once into Switzerland and then once into Germany. Became a refugee because um, I escaped Iran for religious harassment purposes. And I came to the States in uh, 1990, so 20, almost 27 years ago. Um, I started the organization, Iraqi Christian Relief Council, to raise awareness among my American brothers and sisters about what's really happening to the Assyrian Christians in Iraq. And I also work as a senior fellow for Philos Project, which we engage the American Christians with matters of the Middle East. When we hear terms like Nineveh and Assyria, uh, even if we're believers, these seem like antiquated terms, right? They don't seem like they are contemporary. And I think a lot of us don't understand the history of what we're dealing with here. That there's there's this, for example, a, a lot of Americans, and I think even a lot of believers today, have this presupposition that the lands that uh, we are discussing have just always been Islamic. That that's just always the way that they have been. You know, and I've I've... I've made this uh, picture before, and I want to get your take on it. You know, that when we look at the book of Revelation, it begins with seven letters to churches in Asia Minor. Well, where is Asia Minor? That's modern-day Turkey. Exactly. So where did all those churches go? I mean, did the, did the Muslims just show up one day, and they just had a, they had a, they had a campaign? The Christians had their candidate, and the Muslims had their candidate, and the people decided, you know what, we're going to go with the Quran here instead. Is that, They just, over time, just sort of made their own decisions to change religions. What's really the history of these regions and their changeover, right? Because we're having this debate right now about whether Israel's capital is in Jerusalem or not, and the Muslims claim that uh, that is holy land to them, even though it's never even, it's, it's a place that, uh, that is never even mentioned in the Quran. So I, I think there's a lot of confusion about this history. 
history, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, a lot of people, when we started 10 years ago um, speaking about this, a lot of people didn't know that there were Christians in Iraq. And I'll tell you, what used to be called Mesopotamia, today Iraq, uh, southern Turkey, Iran, and etc., we as Assyrians, our history is 6,700 years old. Steve, if you recall when uh, ISIS destroyed the monuments and the Mosul Museum back in 2015, those were those monuments from three, 4,000 years ago. So that's how old we are as an ethnic group. And we are among the first people who converted to Christianity 2,000 years ago through St. Thomas the Apostle and St. Jude, St. Thaddeus. They came to northern Iraq, and we actually walked those grounds um, back in February of last year. And so we have been Christians for 2,000 years. We, Our first persecution began under the Zoroastrian Persians and then under Islam. And everything that you see today, ISIS is, that is ISIS um, done, by, by, perpetrated by ISIS, is exactly what they did 14 centuries ago with the beheadings, with the raping of Christian women, with enslaving them, destroying the churches. So what's happening on the ground in Iraq that we witness today is nothing new to my to my heritage, to my nation. However, um, the, my purpose of being here is to really wake America up and really ask the church to stand in unity with their brothers and sisters. And really, is not just a Christian issue. It's a humanitarian issue because we're also being erased uh, ethnically as Assyrians. What, what is really happening there beyond the images and the headlines that we are privy to through our own media? What, what is the daily life there like on the ground? These people were normal people like you and I, had jobs, had homes, and everything has been ripped away because they were Christian. Um, they now, is this, are is this something that's happening new under the rise of the Islamic State, or has this been going on under the Ba'ath regime with Saddam Hussein for a longer period of time? Great question. Thank you for asking that. Under the Ba'athist party, we were cleansed as, an, as a nation, as an ethnic nation. So with the rise of Arab um, nationalism, which is the ba- result of a Ba'athist uh, movement, we were told that we are not Assyrians, that in fact we're Arabs, which is incorrect because we have Assyrian blood in our veins. Mm-hmm. So he would bury us alive because of our ethnicity. Um, also, he would destroy our churches once in a while, but it was nothing like what happened starting 2003. So in 2003, uh, our persecution really began in modern modern day time, modern times. Um, so our churches from 2003 until t- the rise of uh, ISIS, 2014, our churches were destroyed over 100 times. Mm. And at the time, in 2003, we had one and a half million, 1.6 million Assyrian Christians in Iraq alone. Today, we merely have 200,000 left. Wow. Everyone has fled um, in in the diaspora. They're living in a diaspora, or they have been killed. So today... Diaspora means dispersal. They've evacuated, essentially. Yes, yes. Or they've been forcibly evacuated. Sometimes that's what that can mean as well, right? Exactly. So at the time, prior to 2014, uh, we were given three options. To convert to Islam to pay the tax called jizya, supposedly for protection, which really didn't work anyways, or to leave. So a lot of people left. Those who were left behind, a lot of them were killed. Our priests were mutilated. Our children were uh, kidnapped and cut into pieces, sent to their families. Um, I'll tell you, I'm sorry, this is a graphic image that I'm going to paint for you, but 
there was in 2007 there was this family that whose child was kidnapped and the uh, Muslim the Al-Qaeda at the time uh, asked the family to come in and bring the ransom to claim their child when they went in and we Middle Easterners as you know we uh, throw a big feast for our guests so they had made kebabs and rice and please forgive me what I'm about to tell you it's a little bit graphic so when they consumed the meat and the rice it was actually their child so that is the reality that wow. these people and fast forward to 2014 they did the same exact thing to 14 children of the Yazidi group which is the other minority group living in Iraq that has been completely devastated um, and a lot of times people say Christians are in camps I go to the Middle East a great deal. The only place the Christians are in camps is in northern Iraq. The rest of the countries that people have fled to, like Lebanon, like Jordan, like Turkey, they're living in slums, Steve. They live in ungodly conditions. There are 45,000 Assyrians in Turkey. Today I received a text message from Turkey pleading with us to help, um, who are being evicted from their homes when they're discovered they're Christian, or they have to pretend to be Muslim in order for them to go to an Islamic institution. And this is Turkey, one eat. of our so-called moderate Arab exactly. nations that we were talking, that we're going to put them in NATO and everything else, right? They're exactly. our friend. Exactly, exactly. So in Iraq today, you all know that uh, Mosul liberation began at the end of October. So today, there are a lot of those Christian cities that have been uh, liberated, but they need to be uh, rebuilt. This is a troubling conversation, uh, but it is one that we absolutely have to have, and we will continue in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. So what's yours? Resurrection. He's bringing back the American way. It's Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Juliana Tamarazzi is our guest. She is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council, also the Philos Project. We'll learn more about that during the course of today, uh, tonight's conversation as well. I mentioned before the last break that this is a troubling conversation, and and I want to make I want to clarify why I'm, I'm I'm describing it as such, Juliana, for a moment, because it's not just it, it's it's not just the human toll that you are describing or the or the grisly details that you are sharing with us, and and I think these are things that need to be shared, and we we are encouraged as Americans, particularly, to live a life of complacency. And and sometimes that requires a, a, a level of provocation in this part of the world to get people's attention because they are so distracted by leisure that in other parts of the world you may not have to be uh, as uh, provocative in order to get their attention because they are not similarly afflicted with as much leisure temptation as we are. But that's not what I find troubling about this. What, what I find troubling about this is the dateline that you were laying out for us. I want to go to Afghanistan for a moment. There was a, a report from the State Department about four years ago that, that showed that despite the quote-unquote liberation of Afghanistan, not a single public Christian church remained in the country. When even under the, under the Taliban, and no, we're not saying things were good under the Taliban or they were better, um, but even under the Taliban, there were at least the veneer of a few public Christian churches, that, but that's just gone. They're gone in Afghanistan now. 
you seem to be describing a similar plight, especially when I heard you give the date uh, 2003, because that would have been during the time that uh, that we invaded Iraq and removed Saddam Hussein from power, right? So are are you telling us that religious liberty has actually, even before the rise of Islamic State, was actually diminishing and declining in Iraq because of the change of the regime there even before Islamic State arose? Saddam Hussein was a dictator and he needed to be, he needed to be removed, but he, we had some religious liberty under his ruling, yes. Uh, we were able to, see he was a secular, he was a, he was a dictator, so he squashed everybody, if you will. He controlled everybody, the Shiites, the Christians. But the vacuum of his replacement has been religionists. Devastating. We have beca- we have really our future in northern Iraq if the United States and other powerful countries in the world don't come to our aid. You will see the extinction of a 6,700-year-old nation and a 2,000-year-old uh, community that has kept Christianity alive despite all the persecution. Um, so I will tell you that our churches have been decimated. Majority of our churches have been chemically bombed. Wow. Our church treasures have been either looted or burnt. Uh, I'm sure you've seen reports of bishops escaping and grabbing uh, a few books that monks had put together. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we have very little left. We have our faith left. Um, truly, I, I'll tell you, back in February when we were in Iraq last year they told us these persecuted Christians told us that we are now more even more devoted to Christ than we were prior to the persecution so Mm. it does something to the hearts and minds of Christians persecution does however if we geopolitically if we're speaking geopolitically sure that is going to be the end of Christianity in Iraq in its cradle have and if this is an unfair question for me to ask you, tell me. It's just we get to get an, a subject matter expert with firsthand experience who has lived what we are only watching vicariously through the news is a rare opportunity. I want to take advantage of it. But if I'm asking you, I'll kick your coverage. Feel free to tell me. Yes. Is this a result of a miscalculation? in believing in the Arab Spring, um, moderate Islam, that there are, uh, that, that, that America's way of life is like, is, is not God-given rights in a constitution, but this plug-and-play democracy, and if we just export it to the Middle East and, and change Bible verses for Quran verses and English for Arabic, then everybody will be just like us. That, that has sort of been our foreign policy post 9-11, to varying degrees under both Bush and Obama has been this view, this sort of progressive view of the Middle least i think obama bush may have been a small p progressive and obama a capital p one but they were largely had the same view of the middle east is that has that played into what you are the level of persecution that you are describing absolutely i believe the fact that we think if we export our democracy as you mentioned that they will take on because it's just a natural thing to right. do is is our number one fault they have lived first of all middle east is a tribal area they are not used to having democracy um and the only place that truly i believe would understand the value of democracy was iran in 2009 with the green revolution which we did not which we didn't aid exactly exactly uh this yes we failed in the middle east more with juliana tamarazi founder and president of the iraqi christian relief council in a moment you're listening 
listening to Steve Dace. Liberals seem to have a tough time handling so much truth all in one place. Stop! 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 It's the Steve Day Show. All right, back here with Juliana Temarazzi. She is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council. She's also with the Philos Project. We're going to learn more about that here in just a moment. Because I want to take a, I want to step forward now into the future, Juliana, about it, where we go from here in that part of the uh, region of the world, how our audience can help. We'll get to that too. But if, if you, give us an analysis of, of where this is heading, because it, it seems to me sitting from the cheap seats that we invested a decade worth of, of, of blood and treasure into Iraq to create, which will either be um, the, the cornerstone of a caliphate or an Iranian satellite state. And I don't if creating an if creating an Iranian satellite state is the better case scenario, that's 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 a no win scenario, isn't it? Yes. Um, as far as the caliphate is concerned, uh, when we say we're going to defeat ISIS, I think we're just dreaming because ISIS is a result of an ideology, and the ideology is the Islamic State. And it'll just fl- it'll just switch flags. You get rid of their black flag and something else, just like they were a spout off of Al Qaeda and other groups. Something will spout off of them, right? Absolutely, absolutely. When ISIS came in back into Mosul. Uh, there were about a thousand ISIS members that came back to Mosul. There were twenty thousand ISIS supporters inside Mosul waiting. So this tells you, unless there, there's a revolution from within Islam and serious reformation comes from Islam, we're, we as Westerners will not win this war. The other subject you talked about, Iran, that makes me really nervous for us in the West and for Israel. Look, I was born and raised in Iran. I left. I escaped Iran when I was sixteen years old because of religious harassment. And I grew up with the rhetoric, death to Israel, death to Iran, uh, America. And I remember uh, in 1979, Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini said, I will deliver my revolution to four corners of the world. And with what's happening inside Iraq, uh, with Iranians having so much power in Baghdad, and then now Assad being probably reinstated to reinstated to that. Now we, we wanted to topple him four years ago. Now exactly. we need him to topple Islamic State, right? Exactly, exactly. That is a wide open door for uh, like a corridor from Iran right to the west, right in the heart of Jerusalem, which makes me really nervous. If you had a chance to have five minutes with with Donald Trump as he gets set to take the presidency a week from Friday, what would you tell him? Be um, unapologetic as you are, um, and you, he, he needs to call it what it is, which means if there is cancer, if I say I have a headache, I'm not going to be remedying my cancer is a disease. So when we do we things like to- we're going to move the embassy to Jerusalem, and then tonight the report is, well, maybe we won't. Is that the sort of uh, weak need stuff that in the Middle East they look at and say, maybe this guy is just all bluster and he's not really up, he's not up to the task? He needs to remain man of principle. He needs to know who his friends are and who his foes are. He needs to really support Israel through and through because the only democratic nation in the Middle East is Israel. And he needs to strengthen those who will be an ally for Israel, which is the Assyrian Christian community, whether they're in Iraq, whether they're in Syria, whether they're in Lebanon, Maronites in Lebanon. We as Christians, and with the, we have to stand with the Jews, not only theologically, but also 
Middle um, Israel is westernized, but it's in the heart of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And he needs to truly, Steve, I have to tell you, I think the White House, the State Department and Pentagon, they need to be educated and re-educated on the culture in the Middle East. That we cannot expect them to accept democracy as we understand it here. And we have to be culturally uh, educated and religiously educated with who they are and what uh, what what really makes you have to the accept move. the world for the way it is not the way yes. you would prefer it to be exactly uh, it, because that's the magical thinking progressives typically engage in and I and I'm sure there are people listening to us right now saying listen I don't want it's not our foreign policy's job to defend your religion I think we need to point out this is bigger than that because we're not it's we're not just talking about somebody's private religious practices we're dealing with a region of the world where we have very few friends wiping out populations who have a similar value system to us from a geopolitical standpoint Point that is that is mind-numbingly stupid. Let alone cutting off your nose to spite your face. Right? We want as many people with our values and ideals to be living and breeding in that part of the world as we possibly can, don't we? Absolutely. We Christians of the Middle East are the bridge of understanding between the Islamic East and the Christian West. And if you eradicate Christianity from or the Middle East from Christianity, all you have is a breeding ground for fundamental Islamism. Right. No, there's no, there's not a buffer there at all. Tell us about the Philos Project and how our audience can help you guys' efforts. So Philos Project is an organization based in New York that promotes positive Christian engagement in the Middle East. Through Philos Project, we are uh, really single-handedly changing how... Um, the the Christian uh, American Christians view Israel, and we educate American Christians about their Eastern brothers and sisters from a Christian perspective, and we also get involved geopolitically. For example, the uh, area that has been liberated, called the Nineveh Plain, which is right outside Mosul, uh, that's our ancestral homeland for Assyrians. So Philo's project is very much active in helping create a, a minority um, province for us, for the Turkmen Shiites, for the Yazidi. And we have to strengthen those communities that are there to fight radical Islam in their own land and not allow it to come here. So that's what we do through Philo's project. But humanitarian crisis, as you and I sit here, Steve, is underway. Iraq is extremely cold. There's there's diseases that is running rampant among these refugees that have lived in these camps in northern Iraq for over two years. So through uh, victimsofisis.org, victimsofisis.org, people can truly help from um, basic food to kerosene for their space heaters and medicine that we there are about 200,000 people that are really in need in northern Iraq final words for our audience we got about a minute here before we uh, have to let you go anything you want them to consider here as we close out this conversation which I think has been fascinating heartbreaking but also very enlightening thank you for the opportunity real quick when 9-11 happened I called my mother and I said mom they have come here we escaped these people and they're here mm-hmm. what I ask my fellow Americans is to really say something when they see something radicalism does not happen overnight it happens very slowly that's number one so when you do see radicalism happening around you report it. That's number one. Number two, don't forget about uh, the Christians or just humans in the Middle East, in Iraq especially, that are suffering so much. Visit our website, victimsofisis.org. We're rebuilding the Christian community in northern Iraq through Operation Return to Nineveh. Like us on Facebook, like us on tw- and follow us on Twitter, please. Juliana Temarazi, this has been uh, a much needed conversation. Thank you for being with us tonight. You did a great job. Thank you so much. More in a moment. 
listening to Steve Dace. There's left, there's right, and then there's right. You've come to the right place. It's the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. That was quite a conversation we just had with Juliana Tamarazzi, who is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council. Victimsofisis.org is the website, again, if you want to get more information on what uh, they do. Victimsofisis.org. So I, I, I just happened to see while I was talking to Juliana, I, I, every now and then I glanced at the two of you to get your reaction. I, have you guys picked your jaws up off the floor yet after that conversation? Because um, she said a lot of things we needed to hear, but um, that conversation was not a warm, fuzzy, Kim. Right. She was brilliant and brave, and I'm grateful that she was here with us. Um, one of the things I found interesting is that she was saying that our government has no clue about the culture in the Middle East. And until they get that clue, there's no way they're going to know how to get move forward. And the whole idea that if you defeat ISIS, and I'm doing that in air quotes, there will be something else springing up because it comes from Islam. Let me along the lines of what you just said. The whole moving the Israel the the embassy to Jerusalem is a great example of this. I'm not a diplomat. I don't work at the State Department. I don't work for the intelligence community. I've never had a meeting with Dory Gold and Benjamin Netanyahu. Actually, I've interviewed Dory Gold, but meaning I've never sat down with the Brain Trust in Tel Aviv to say, hey, you guys tell us if this would help you or not. I guess what I'm trying to say is it might be bad geopolitics to move the embassy there, meaning the risk-reward might not be a good ratio. I'm not saying that's not the case. I don't know. What I am saying, though, is you are dealing with what we don't have anymore in America, but they still do over there, which is an honor-based culture. If a man is going to make a pronouncement, I'm going to do this, particularly one in power, and you don't follow through and carry through, that is not looked at as pragmatism or utilitarian flexibility or being situationally, ethically enlightened as we think about it in the West. It is looked at over there as weak. It is looked at over there as, eh, all hat and no cattle. That's how they look at it over there. So my point is, if you're not 100% sure you're going to be able to move the embassy to, to Jerusalem or you think it's even a worthwhile move, then say nothing. But Todd, don't threaten it and then not follow through. That is an example of their, their policy. First of all, they don't have elected politicians like we do looking at the overnight polling and focus grouping every night. They don't do that. They don't, that's how it operates over there. So don't make, don't throw, don't rattle sabers unless you're going to follow through. That's an example of what she was talking about. You're of course right, and that's what we we're going to find out very soon on this front and many others if Donald uh, Trump is serious or not. And I really liked your point uh, talking about it's not we're not we don't want to just defend them because they're Christians, Steve. We want to defend them because they are people we can legitimately work with in a scenario a that's, with yeah. yeah, it's not all. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, it's not we don't have to just drop bombs even because we disagree. There's a middle ground that would be refreshing. Hour two is next. Listening to Steve Dace.
are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with hour two. No, it's hour three. Time flies when you're having fun. You're on the Steve Day Show. Back with hour three here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D E A C E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Worldview Wednesday coming up here in about 15 minutes. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? A question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Yes, indeed, it is time for three questions when we test Aaron, see how he's doing with that learner's permit that he just acquired. We let him have control. He gets to take the wheel, drive the vehicle, at least for this segment. He gets to ask the questions around here. He can ask us anything that he wants. Nothing is off limits, but he has to answer the same questions he asks of us. Thank you, Steve. And if you have a question you would like to have asked or considered to be asked on this segment, you can email me, Aaron at SteveDace.com. Question one, if the left really cared about all the minorities they say they represent, what would they be doing differently right now? Number one thing they would be doing differently, and I think you're going to hear me saying this a lot on this show. Um. They would be putting the interests of everyday Americans ahead of cultural Marxism. Because what's happening on the left now is proof that we're right when we tell you no man can rise above his own worldview. They are acting in ways. You know, I had somebody say to me today on Facebook when, uh, about, uh, you know, uh, uh, most of the stuff that Trump has done from a policy standpoint, we would cheer if it came from any other Republican in the first few days. And they said, yeah, I think his motivation is just that he knows he needs us right now. Well, I don't really care what his motivation is. Which you're, well, I mean, I do, but if I, let me rephrase that. I do care what your motivation is, right? Because I'm a Christian and the Bible is clear. God ultimately judges us on our motivations. But from a political standpoint, if I can't get you to do what I think is right because we share a common value system, the next best thing is that you do what is what, what you think the people want because they're ultimately in charge and get rid of you uh, if 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 you don't. And so, if that's his motivation, it's not the one I would prefer. But it's better than uh, he doesn't has a tin ear and doesn't listen to us at all. What I'd be very concerned about on the left is when I see union people applauding Trump and things of that nature, I know why conservatives are despondent over that. The people on the left should be despondent about it, too, but for different reasons. What's happening is he is exposing the fact that, that you really don't care about the average American. You, you, you care about imposing cultural Marxism by hook or by crook. That's really what you care about. And, and, and I think that's what has transpired in this 
election. I think it's what transpired in 2010 and 2014 when Obama wasn't on the ballot. I think it transpired again in 2016 when Obama wasn't on the ballot. There are Dem voters and there are Obama voters. There are racial minorities that Obama brought out in droves because they believed in his life story, because he had lived the life in the, the the upbringing without a single mom coming from a poor family he had he had lived their biography they identified with that and because he's likable so they related to him remove the human obama factor from the equation in the last three elections and what have we seen they got annihilated in 2010 they did win in 2012 when he was on the ballot. They got creamed even worse in 2014 than they did in 2010, and they just lost again in 2016. Three of the last four elections, the left has lost badly when he was not the face of their movement. <clears throat> what does that mean? It means their issues, where they stand on the issues, can't stand on its own. They needed his persona to make people focus, focus on that rather than where they truly stand. Remove his persona. Hillary doesn't have that kind of charisma. And now it really is about, oh, you want to turn us into Europe. I, I don't want to be Europe. I thought we fought a revolution to not be Europe. I, I, we want to be America, but thanks. That's why, even though I didn't like much of the content in his speech, 65% of Americans said today they love his inaugural speech because it was a bunch of pro-American sentiments. And that's, that's the number one thing the left has to do, Todd. They have to put the needs of everyday Americans ahead of their own cultural Marxism, but they may not be capable of doing that. And as it applies specifically, you mentioned minorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would be talking a lot more about the church and the family and fatherhood. It, it, it is demonstra- demonstrably true that if uh, you took care of the fatherhood issue in the inner cities many if not most of the inner city problems would go away I mean, we, li- black literacy rates have plummeted along with the plummeting uh, of the presence of uh, fatherhood the, the, the data the science that the left claims to love so much they just ignore on this you want a miracle i give you one talk about that as you pointed out to me in the first uh, segment of the show, actually, Steve, uh, that Donald Trump doesn't have the worldview to use the bully pulpit the way that we uh, would like him to use in terms of starting an argument. If the left really cared about minorities, well, I, I, I think I need to challenge the premise of my own question here. They don't have a worldview capable of caring about anything other than their own power or the power of the government. Because as Todd, and I agree with what Todd just pointed out, if they really cared about minorities, they would be focusing on the family. They would be focusing on fatherhood. But then um, I don't think they're capable of at least recognizing, or if they do recognize that those are where the issues or those are where the problem parts are, they're not admitting that themselves. So I don't think they're capable of actually caring for actually caring for anybody other than themselves and the government. Uh, Question two, what's the biggest difference between men and women nobody talks about? All of them. Uh, Well, depending on who's the nobody. I mean, I think average Americans talk about this stuff all the time or people with uh, that may not that might be extraordinary Americans, but have the right worldview. Talk about the obvious differences emotionally, physically, um, all of the time. I I think um, I, I think it's in the elite circles of thought that have totally bought into progressivism where they've lost these things. I don't really think there's anything we're missing out on at all. Do you? I don't think so. I mean, I don't think there's anything that you could say about the differences between men and women. If you grab the average American off the street, they're like, that's news to me. I didn't, you know, I'm not not, not even talking physiology. 
And I'm talking, you know, um, you know, from a from a psychological or a soul perspective. I, I don't think there's much out there that would be shocking to the average American, but it might shock the faculty on both coasts, Todd. Oh yeah, I mean, there's just so much about this issue that regular people, if they're just being absolutely honest, yeah, they get even some people uh, on the left, which is why the 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 links that the the crazies of in, in the progressive world will go to try to shush that to knock about it, talk about it, to provide a different narrative is is so robust i mean there is there's scientific studies that uh the, there's a hormone that women exude uh when they are uh having babies uh, when they are having uh, sex and when they are breastfeeding. I mean, there is science involved that there's just, women are just so wired differently. And my point being there is that's why when bad relationships, when they have uh, sex before marriage, they are just they become emotionally bonded to bad people the way they might be bonded to their very infant just through their physiology. I mean, that is remarkable. Uh, but we won't have conversations like that because we need to believe that a man can become a woman. Yeah, I think it's, I think I would agree with both of you. Um, the fact that these differences are so stark that, um, you know, you could posit that the average man or woman on the street uh, could spot any of those differences. I think that uh, that says all that needs to be said. Question three, if the rules of football were changed, and I'm talking about the only football here, were changed to where <laughs> there were 12 men on the field at the same time for both sides of the ball instead of 11 what position on offense and defense should the 12th man play? I wouldn't advocate allowing this in the first place, except in, if you wanted to propose that that is done on, um, on say, punts, where the punter, therefore, is just free to come in and kick and not be a part of the physical play. But um, it's the beautiful game, and it's just right at 11 on 11. So um, I wouldn't advocate bringing a 12th player in at all, I would advocate scourging the person who would advocate that, Todd. <laughs> Which would be Aaron. Uh, but, but you Not also... advocating. You, I'm <laughs> just asking the question, you, you know. You also... Uh, I don't know if you realize you just took the beautiful game I know. Do you see what I did soccer. there? I was wondering if you were going to keep... If you were going to notice that. Reappropriating yes. that? Yes. Mm, that's nice. Wow. Someone should write a book about to reversing your opponent's premise and using it against them. Indeed, yes. Both, both teams should have somebody just standing there protesting the existence of uh, instant replay. I would say an additional oh. line. See what I did and, there? An additional line. I played eight-man football in high school, so I'm, I'm totally down, with, uh, down, down to clown with different uh, numbers of players on the field. Yeah, I mean, schools that are small, that, mm-hmm. that don't have the numbers, eight-man can be exciting, sure. Yeah, yeah but you, you don't mess with that at the pro level, no. You're listening to Steve Dace. I personally believe... Elitism. Marxism. Atheist. Government intervention. Secular humanist. Liberals and conservatives. Materialism. Nihilism. U.S. Americans. Christian. Globalist. Socialist. Democracy. Worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face. Libertarian. Tea Partier. The free market. Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace. And this is Worldview Wednesday, your college philosophy class on the radio, as we like to call it. 
where we delve a little bit deeper into the various worldviews that uh, dictate uh, the news events and the debates that uh, we see, witness, and take part in each and every day on this show and, and others like it. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Well, this week we're going to talk about what might be the most important event in history few know really anything about. Even though when the History Channel did its list in 1999 of the top 100 people of the millennium, two of the top three people of the millennium were key figures in this historical event. It is the 500th anniversary here in 2017 of the Protestant Reformation. Michael Austin is with the Christian History Institute, and he joins us for this Worldview Wednesday to take a look back at what really went down and why, and why it matters even now, because you could make a case, and we will try to make that case during this conversation, that the America we were originally founded to be would have never happened without this moment in time. So, Michael, my name is Steve Dace. It's a pleasure to have you with us tonight. How are you? Very well, Steve. Thank you for having me, and um, thank you for the opportunity to um, talk about this important topic. So, in my lead-up to bringing you on tonight, did I blow this out of proportion at all, the importance of, of this no, event? No, sir. Not at all. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm impressed by what you said. And uh, you're absolutely right. This is a, uh, a, for we Christians especially, this is a very important event in history, perhaps uh, arguably the the most important uh, event since uh, our Savior walked on this earth, and it changed everything. One of the reasons it changed everything, the decentralization of knowledge, the, the changing of the flow of epistemology in a culture. Um, and, 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 and therefore, when the notion was taken hold that I could have access to God's word in my own native language, that I, I didn't require a central authority structure in order to, to know God and to study his word for myself, it began begging some rather obvious questions, Michael, which is that if my own soul is 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 dealt with on an individual level like this by the most powerful being in the universe, then why don't these same principles apply to science, to economics, to really the way knowledge flows in, in every sector of the culture? And this was the point the History Channel made, which is, regardless of where you come down on, on Luther and his legacy, where you come down theologically uh, within, the, uh, within the scope of the Protestant Reformation, the cultural impact it had is what created the, uh, the, the rise of free market economics and the Industrial Revolution, the Scientific Revolution. Many of the advances that sa- saved Western civilization and were the foundations of American exceptionalism. Agreed, absolutely. I, I, I love the way you frame this because uh, you're doing so in terms that we today can understand this because we are in the grip of a very similar set of circumstances where uh, the mixture of technology uh, and revelation are coming together in such a way that is it is changing our lives, it is changing our culture. And um, what's fascinating about this uh, uh, this series of articles, this series of, of issues, 
by the way, uh, Christian History Magazine has published four, uh, already have published three. There will be a series, it's a series of four commemorating the, uh, the Reformation. And, um, uh, the impact that, um, this had on the time of, of uh, the 1500s, the 16th century in Europe. Uh, the impact is very similar to what people are experiencing today in that this is a, a totally new world view or, and, and also gives us an opportunity to have a, uh, a world view of our own. And this is a very personal um, experience. In fact, I, I often refer to Martin Luther as the first celebrity of, uh, of the modern age because people learned about him, they learned about his life, they learned about what he was thinking due to uh, the invention of the Gutenberg Press, uh, a brand new technology, brand new uh, communications technology, and they learned about an individual who uh, was whose life was changed by scripture and this was unheard of at the time you mentioned the parallels between the early 16th century and today and the advent of technology and you gave us two two names there Gutenberg and Luther and those were two of the top 3 names listed by the history channel in terms of the most influential people of the last millennium and and Luther was not the first attempted reformer that came along uh, there were others throughout history, but he was the first one that came along with a, a technology available that allowed him to get his message to the masses around the authority structure that he was challenging in his day. And where I see a parallel in our day is is I have cautioned our audience. When, when, when the government comes to you and says, there's too much smut on the Internet, that's why you need to give us control to clean it up. Listen, go buy your own filter. Police your own internet. Watch what your kids' activity online is. Don't ever let them get their grimy hands on control of it. Because what this is really about, this isn't about cleaning up the internet's red light district. It's about getting control of, of a technological innovation that allows the free flow of information outside of their control. And you don't ever want to give that up. And that's one of the lessons that I think we learned from the Reformation, Michael. Absolutely. The, uh, the religious life in Europe at that time was under complete control of the Catholic Church. Uh, there were other movements, there were other traditions, there were other, other lines of, uh, in, within the history of the faith, but predominantly the Catholic Church was controlling um, the, the life, the religious life in Europe. They were controlling uh, people's ability to read Scripture. Most of their priests could not read Latin. Uh, it was the the Bible was written. Their Bible was written in Latin at the time. Uh, there was really nothing uh, comparable to what we would think of as Bible study. Nothing at all. Um, sadly, our mainline churches today are giving out just about as much information about Scripture as the Catholic Church was in that day, which would be a verse or two. <laughs> but um, I'm sitting uh, here at my desk looking at about, I don't know, about 27 different uh, uh, Bibles, uh, 
sitting next to And that, that didn't exist until this moment in history. Michael Austin is here with us from the Christian History Institute on a Worldview Wednesday looking at the anniversary of the Reformation. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. He has not yet begun to offend. This is Steve Dace. Back here on a Worldview Wednesday, you're on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. This Worldview Wednesday, we are commemorating the 500th anniversary of what I think is one of the most important events in all of human history, and certainly has been influential uh, in the launching and founding of this country, and that is the Protestant Reformation. Many of the notions of an individual's right uh, and an individual's um, uh, path to relate to God rights coming from God, as as our country was founded on, these were notions that simply did not exist in Western civilization prior to this little Augustinian monk one day showing up on Halloween uh, in 1517, and he nailed to the door at Wittenberg a disputation, which were titled 95 Theses, a disputation being an academic term, meaning he was seeking a debate, a dialogue, a discussion questioning some of the teachings and the traditions that were being engaged at the time. And, and Martin Luther is, is, to me, a complicated figure. Uh, he is both demonized and lionized. But as is the case with human nature, I'm not sure either one of those things are adequate. Uh, he was uh, brilliant, said some things throughout the course of his time. When you research some of what he said, Michael, that I don't know how else to define them, but are just downright anti-Semitic. On the other hand, um, a lot of us would not be here today enjoying the freedom and spoils of individual liberty in Western civilization without the role that he played in history as well. So who was this, this monk who became a monk without really ever studying the Bible, went to Rome to perform a papal duty while he was there, starts reading Romans one seventeen, and the just shall live by faith. And he said that was the verse that spawned the Reformation. Who was Martin Luther, really? Well, he comes uh, at a time of of many reform attempts by many others. And so we have to believe that the conversations of of monks, of priests, of churchmen, uh, was filled with the ideas of reform. So I think in, in, in many ways, Martin Luther is, is held uh, uh, to be far more of a revolutionary than he was in that regard. However, he was a man of extraordinary courage. Um, we, I don't think we can um, imagine the, um, the fortitude, the courage that was required for a monk um, to uh, challenge the establishment the way that he did. And you are quite, quite right that um, we, it, it changed uh, the course of Western civilization without a doubt. It perhaps um, started the Western civilization um, on the course uh, uh, that uh, led to what we know today as this uh, civilization and this culture, which, by the way, is under tremendous threat uh, because of the Bible and the, the history of the faith being removed from our public education. But uh, Martin Luther is, uh, you're quite right, a very complex man. Um, a man of many talents, many gifts, 
uh, high intellectual uh, thinker, um, and yet someone who could relate to uh, his peers and to those who sought to um, uh, to increase their faith, to have a faith. Um, we have to remember, uh, we have to take into consideration that this was a, a rather closed society that he lived in. Uh, most of the common people, if you'll excuse that term, um, the peasants, uh, the people that were um, you know, going to work every day, were not engaged in these issues. And so these issues were being discussed within the monasteries, within the cloisters, uh, within the church. And he stood up uh, to, well, I, I'm reminded of, of the Chinese uh, uh, um, advocate, uh, who at Tiananmen Square stood in front of a tank. And uh, it, it's that kind of image that comes to mind when I think of Martin Luther. Here I stand, I can do no more. May God have mercy on my soul. A couple of years ago for a family vacation, we went down to uh, Springfield, Illinois, because it was the closest place. The family that owns the Hobby Lobbies, they have that, uh, that traveling Bible archive exhibit. A, a lot of artifacts that they've collected over the years that are really expensive, and they were taking it around the country. It is extraordinary. And Springfield, Illinois was the closest to Des Moines. And one of the fascinating things in there is, in fact, I don't think I've even mentioned this to you guys when we've talked about this before. There is a video of uh, that that has that's a sort of a holographic video of Erasmus and Luther, uh, the the two rivals. Who I mean, Luther used to pray, "God curse Erasmus." This, these were the alter egos of this time, and you can watch them go back and forth on these issues. And it's, it's objectively portrayed with each side putting their best foot forward. And my kids didn't get it. I sat there and watched that cotton-picking thing for 15 minutes. I couldn't get enough of it. I waited for it to reload. I thought it was so cool. Michael Austin is here with us from the Christian History Institute looking at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Putting the fun back in fundamentalist, the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on a Worldview Wednesday, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. We're looking at the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, maybe the most important moment in human history few know anything about. And we're doing so with Michael Austin, who's our tour guide tonight from the Christian History Institute. And Michael, how can people get more information about what you guys do before we run out of time this evening? Well, they can go to the website, uh, christianhistorymagazine.org. And by the way, they can read this, uh, all of the articles in this magazine. There's a, a very, uh, excellent reader, um, on the, uh, on the homepage. They can also read all of the past issues. This, by the way, is the 100, well, the, the uh, the most current issue is, uh, 120, which covers Calvin. And um, all of these issues can be read right on the uh, right on the website. So that's uh, ChristianHistoryMagazine.org. The word reform means to form again, not necessarily to replace. And without getting too much into the theological weeds here, 
because the Reformation was much more than than Luther to bar to borrow historical um, uh, analogy. He may have been the cow that kicked over Mrs. O'Leary's lantern that started the fire, but uh, um, there was a lot more oxygen that was allowing it to breathe. You mentioned Calvin. You mentioned, I mean, other names, Knox, Zwingli. These are people that were also prominent during this time for Theo nerds like me. But I wonder how much of what many of the reformers were trying to reform, how much of it was uh, uh, returning to original teachings that had long been lost in and had they had viewed had been lost in their era from men like augustine for example how much were early church thinkers influential in what they said and did and how much of it really was new well i think they were heavily influenced by uh greek and roman history uh figures such as uh augustine or augustine um, and and many others, they were. Uh, this was their. Um, let's see, <laughs> how to express this? Um, it's sort of like the sea that they were swimming in. Uh, you mentioned Erasmus, who would who would be in the category of a Christian humanist, humanism that was coming out of the um, out, out of the uh, Renaissance, uh, not Renaissance, but the. Uh, the um, uh, the culture of the Roman culture, the Greek culture, um, humanism was was influencing uh, in, enormously, and and I think the the everyday culture, the everyday thinking, would be uh, as it is today, uh, heavily humanist. Now it's a different kind of human humanism because. Uh, in that day, they were applying uh, the humanism that comes from the Greek culture and the Roman culture to Christian, a, 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 a deep uh, 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 Christian worldview. Uh, today, we're casting away the, uh, the, the Bible and the Christian worldview and, and, and thinking and, and living in the sea of, of um, uh, secular humanism. But, uh, yes, they were heavily influenced by uh, the traditions they were seeking, I believe. They were trying to, uh, in a sense, reform, to go back to the heart. Of course, they had this incredible uh, uh, resource in their hands uh, that they never had had before, which was, of course, the Scripture. The Scripture was being translated. Uh, Wycliffe, uh, just a, a century earlier, had uh, translated the Bible. John Huss had uh, been burned at the stake by the Catholics uh, for uh, translating the Bible. John Wycliffe was at work, uh, uh, having come from England and was translating the Bible. It was a time and a, and a time of enormous change and very rapid change that I think only we today can understand with the effect that the Internet has had. Um, imagine if the internet was all the Bible, all the scripture, that this, this, this driving force of technology had everything to do with scripture and the Bible, and how exciting that, uh, that would have been. Um, you, you described the danger of the internet. Well, uh, of course, the, the establishment at that time in the Catholic Church felt the same way about people actually being able to read the Bible themselves. What is a way that people living right now, listening to us today, 
what's a way the Protestant Reformation influenced what they take for granted that they may not even understand or, or realize, Michael? Well, I think one thing is the actually actually the founding of this country, which of course was the fruit of something that started back at the Magna in the day of the Magna Carta, when people began to um, change their worldview, namely uh, adhering to what the king had to say, thinking of the king as the, actually being the power of God Himself and beginning to think of a, a different law, a different worldview, a, a different way of comprehending uh, their everyday experience. Um, and that movement, uh, which, which uh, began in Europe uh, several hundred years before people came to the United States, that movement, the fruit of that movement, uh, is this country that we live in today. We take for granted our personal freedoms. We take for granted our, our personal, uh, you know, ideas of our personal destiny, uh, of actually making choices about um, how we might educate ourselves and how we might live our lives. These concepts are thoroughly, were, were thoroughly foreign uh, in the day that we're talking about uh, 500 years ago in the Reformation. Michael, fascinating conversation. One more time before we have to let you go here. Uh, take a few seconds and remind our audience how they can learn more about this event and follow what you guys do there at the Christian History Institute. Go to christianhistorymagazine.org, and uh, it's a wonderful resource. Uh, it actually is a research uh, resource. Lots of articles, lots of um, uh, material to, uh, to explore. And by the way, there is a, uh, they can find a, a video titled This Changed Everything uh, on, that, on that website, which is a, a wonderful um, series of interviews of theologians and, and authors um, that uh, will inform them about uh, this time and this incredible change in history. Thank you, Michael. Great conversation. We'll do it again sometime. We'll come back, wrap things up here in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Radio's version of the Red Pill. You take the Red Pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. It's Steve Dace. Fascinating conversation with Michael Austin. At least I was fascinated. Hopefully you were as well. Looking at the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation here on a Worldview Wednesday. So what do we learn from this conversation, Todd and Aaron? What do you think as you listen to what Michael had to say? Uh, God is an omniscient God, and he's uh, in control of everything, and he has a plan. And what I read about the Reformation and uh, what resulted from that, mainly in the context of getting the Bible translated into a common language, God used all of that, those those uh, decades and hundreds of years surrounding the Reformation. God used that to give us no excuse. Look at the number of translations that are available uh, today because of what um, what happened through the Reformation. And, and again, I'm, I'm specifically thinking about Bible translations. That is being used to give nobody, no people group, nobody an excuse not to know the gospel and to know God. 
And I think this is, again, you, you can look back through history and just look at the way and the people that he used and the, um, the, the tapestry that's woven um, by our creator to give us all a way to know him better. That's, that's my takeaway. Todd? Uh, a couple points. The Catholics back in the day certainly did have Bible study, but like the priest you mentioned that were illiterate, almost everybody was illiterate. I mean, Martin Luther came along and capitalized on the age of the printing press. I mean, the timing uh, was perfect, but Catholics had the Mass, Catholics had the Rosary, all of which are uh, deeply immersed in uh, Scripture. So there's that. And from the point of the hierarchy of the Church, this is important. While it is a very good thing that every single Christian has access to the Bible, if you have a good king, a, a good pope, things uh, will work out well. If you don't, things can work out poorly. But the same holds true to the particular individual reading that Bible. Ain't that the are, truth? Are yes. we any better off in this day and age, following how many hundreds of years after the Protestant Revolution, because everybody's had access to the Bible? I mean, you had split after split after split after split. It wasn't just, oh, finally it's here. No, the breaking continues to this very day. So as the Catholic, I, I, I heard that within the spirit of goodwill, which it wasn't intended, but I also, and I don't think it was his purpose to set up any straw men. I just want to make sure nobody gets carried away with it. Well, one of the things I have said on this show before that has really angered people is there, there, there are Protestants who like to refer to, and you've heard this pejorative, and there's enough pejoratives that go around on both sides, and the history of both sides in this conflict, by the way, is not one of, uh, of putting your best foot forward and necessarily the best optics, Preach. okay? But, but one of the pejoratives Protestants, some Protestants still like to throw at Catholics is you're not Christians, you're Papists. Well, you know, I, I know a lot of Protestants who, who, if that's what they believe, if that's their definition of what that means, are papists themselves. Yeah. It's just their papacy might be in Colorado Springs. <laughs> it might be in Atlanta, Georgia. It might be in Lynchburg, Virginia. You know what I'm trying to say here? How dare you have a different opinion than this evangelical leader who's been around a lot longer than you? And I'm not, I don't have a different opinion. I'm just asking why we don't do what the Bible says. Is the, and if this isn't what the Bible says, then tell me what it says. John three seventeen. You're listening to Steve Dace.